Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hello and welcome to So Very Wrong About Games. I am your co-host Michael Walker, the naysayer, and I'm here with your good friend and mine, Mark Bigney. How are you today, Mark? Nay, nay, I say nay. You say nay, I am the naysayer. They say those who can't do, teach. And Mark and I cannot stop playing bad games. So we're going to teach you which ones to avoid. So let me engage standard podcast template alpha. First we're going to do games we played this week. Then we're going to do our feature game. News that doesn't matter. And then, spoiler alert, because it's probably not in the title, we're going to talk about dexterity games. So, Mark, what did you play this week? Well, before we get into that, Walker, actually, I'd like to issue a small correction, because I think that editorial rigor matters, even on the internet. Uh, We mentioned last week, while talking about Necromon Underhive, something we're both looking forward to, but we haven't tried yet, that it might have uh, pressed-together models. Well, they actually have multi-part glued-together models, so you can make your gangers... You know, look appropriate. They they're carrying the right weapons. I just wanted to get that out of the way because if we say something that's wrong, I'd like to be able to get on the record and correct it. No problem at all. Anyway, that having been said, so games that I played. So one game that I played uh, last week, a game that I was very much looking forward to, is a game called Empires. Uh, now, to be clear, let me rant about the name for just a, a, a second here. Not only is this a terribly generic game, but this uh, name, but this game was released by WizKids, and this these are the same people who put out Sidereal Confluence, Trading and Negotiation, the Leasing Quadrant, which is far too verbose and far too weird, and no one can remember the name. And now they've released a game that in some ways is similar. It's a 2-10 player trading and negotiation game with special powers, whereas Sidereal Confluence is a 5-9 player game with trading and negotiation and special powers. They're very different in other ways, but... One is too many words and no one can remember the name, and this is one word and no one can remember the name. And let me be clear, this is the Empires that was released in 2017, not the Empires released in 1940, not the Empires released in 1981, not the Empires released in 2001, not the other Empires released in 2001, and not the other Empires released in 2017. This is the one released in 2017 by WizKids. Oh, the WizKids Empire. Oh, I see, I got confused there. I thought you were talking about the one from... The 70s, that's the one I thought you were going to talk about. Yeah, exactly. And try finding this thing on the Board Game Geek database. You enter in Empires and you're going to get two bloody pages of everything from Empires of the Void, Empires of the Middle Ages, Empires of every other bloody time period. Anyway, that out, that out the way. That's well, not the point. I'm saying that being said, quick note on that. Like These companies, they have to know that people are now looking into the games before they buy them. And if you can't type the name of your game in a search engine, in BGG, or just a regular online shop, then... 
you know, I know you want to be different and have a name that people are going to remember, but you have to have it so people can actually find it as well. Absolutely. Which is, which is the same problem that both Sidereal Confluence and Empires has. Nobody can remember Sidereal Confluence. Nobody can remember, nobody can find the right Empires. And it's especially galling because for a while, Sidereal Confluence was going to be published under the name Trade Empires, which is a fine name. It's not particularly distinctive, but you can find it in a, in a database and it's just, it's descriptive enough of what's going on. Anyway, setting all of that aside, I was actually hopeful that Empires would be, would be pretty compelling because then I could have a lighter, more approachable, large number of players negotiation game. Sadly, it was uh, more or less a total bust because... One of the things you need in a trading game is you need, I don't know, trading. And the economy of empires, although superficially interesting and has a couple of borderline clever bits, there's not enough surplus or scarcity in the system to encourage trading. You trade when I have too much of something and you have too little of something. But when nobody has enough of anything, then no one's going to trade. And you need some kind of economic asymmetry. You need supply and demand or else it's not going to... Exactly. And when everybody needs the same stuff, and when nobody has a spares of much of anything, and when the units of measurement, if the, the, the units of currency in the game are all so big, giving up a one thing in empires is a big deal, as opposed to serial confluence, where you know, you've got lots of little cubes and you can trade them all day long. Uh, and it's really a question of, of maximizing efficiency. Anyway, I'll stop comparing Empires to Sidereal Confluence now, I promise. But as a trading game, it mostly falls flat. As a negotiation game, there's nothing to negotiate because everyone looks around the table and says, yeah, I'm, I'm not happy with what I've got, but nobody can make it better. Basically, what you're left with is there are some blind auctions in the game, which I confess for blind auctions were fine, but that's more or less what you've got. So what you're left with is uh, the only virtues of the game is that it will accommodate large numbers of people, and it's reasonably quick. It lasts about an hour. But it's pretty dull. So I, I wish I could recommend the game, but I can't. That's Empires. Yeah. yeah. Recommended. Mine's not so heavy. Mine's just Clank and Space, the re, re-skinning of, of Clank. And I, I just like it better than the original. It's like just a standard deck builder. What they've changed is they put cool like uh, color powers in it, like Star Realms. Right, so if you combo cards up, then you're going to get extra powers, and it's on a space station with a giant alien trying to kill you, and it's standard clank. I enjoy it, and I enjoy it more than the original. Yeah, I've played it with you a couple times. Uh, I prefer my deck builders a little quicker. The downtime I find a little bit obnoxious, to be honest. It is a little long, for sure. Yeah. Um, It's also, uh, and again, this is not necessarily the fault of clank. Uh, I find that it suffers really badly in comparison to Knizia's Quest for Eldorado, which is also a deck builder game where you're racing towards uh, towards a conclusion. But uh, I found that uh, Quest for Eldorado is, in addition to being tighter and having more compelling trade-offs, it also has more player interaction because Clank has... It's, it's weird. All the interactions very indirect in, in the traditional way of a deck builder. That's right. You know, you toss out minor inconveniences to the table kind of indiscriminately, which is fine so far as it goes, but... Yeah, the standard interaction that when it doesn't when it doesn't actually exist is the getting things before other people can get them, right? Yeah. So it's you're really going solo. Yeah. The next game that I want to talk about is Pandemic Legacy Season 2. I've, you finally got it to the table? Yeah, I've gotten uh, a small handful of plays under my belt. Uh, as is a very strong editorial policy of this podcast, we will not be engaging in any spoilers. 
But I can tell you, and uh, at this point I might s start to sound like a curmudgeon that's impossible to please, uh, I think it is a step backwards in every way from both Vanilla Pandemic and from the first season of Pandemic Legacy. They've done some fundamental changes to the economy of, of the game, the way the, the game functions. The core mechanics have taken a rather substantial alteration, partially to accommodate the theme and partially to accommodate their uh, the, the, the progress of the Legacy features. And I do not like it. It increases the variance a great deal. Uh, Pandemic is never has never been a fully deterministic game, but there were times where you could look at the board state and say, okay, this is a problem area, this is this is not a problem area, this we don't have to worry about for too long. Pandemic Legacy Season 2 seeks to undermine that at every available opportunity, making it a more arbitrary experience where uh, you don't really know where things are going to go bad because, the, because of the way the composition of the decks has been altered. I'm going to keep playing it, and partially because the person with whom I'm playing it is huge on legacy elements. Loves putting out them stickers, and there's a certain joy in that. I was going to say, do they try to make up with it with theme at all, or does it try to compensate with that, or is it just does it not enough to offset the problem so far? I can't go into too much detail without no, getting into spoiler but... territory. I find the theme so far slightly better than Pandemic Legacy Season 1. I still really prefer the sort of incredibly naive but optimistic theme of the original pandemic. It's like, people are sick and we just need to cure them. Gotcha. I'm, I'm still kind of down with that. That, that, that kind of gets to me. Uh, there's a weird... There are a number of weird things going on in Legacy Season 2, and I can't comment too much more about the theme until I see the payoff, to be honest. But there is, admittedly, an odd disconnect between pandemic... Legacy Season 1 and Season 2. They say that Season 1 is a direct follow-on from Season 1, but it isn't. It's it's a kind of sort of soft reboot-esque kind of thing that movies often do. Uh, so we'll see what payoff there is, but so far I'm not very impressed. Gotcha. Next on my list is Orleans. I already talked about it last week, so just a quick note, because the Trade and Intrigue expansion just became available in North America, so we played with the new uh, events, and there are new... Uh, new deck of cards where you turn up five and you can start uh, trading goods to the towns as you move through them for more victory points. So if you're in that particular town and you have those particular goods, then you can take that card and it'll be worth victory points at the end of the game. Does this provide more meat to the sort of traveling around elements? Yeah, it, it really brings out that map, right? So if you're just more into getting, you know, the citizens and not so much about placing out the trade posts, this really brings that map out where you can, where it's yet another road to victory, right? And then the event deck is graduated because I love graduated decks because I don't understand why it's not always done. But anyway, <laughs> moving on. So the the will be a little bit softer at the beginning and then the events will get more difficult and it is always randomized there's some that you will not use in some, you know i mean it's uh take four from a pile of of x right so it'll be different every time so that is orleans trade and intrigue yeah i might have to give Orleans another shot with, with all this new stuff that you keep raving about i was never too huge on the base game and i realized that uh that's very much contrary to your preferences, in, in part because I just flatly prefer Hyperborea. One of the things that I had against Orléans was that a lot of the decisions are front-loaded. You have to you know, commit to text relatively early on or you're not going get, to get anywhere. Uh, and in, wherever possible, I like to avoid front-loaded decisions. True. It is very heavy on the buildings, and that's why I went, as soon as we played again, I went right and bought all the promos just because we are playing it a lot lately. Mm. And all it does is... It really. I, at first, I thought some of the buildings were overpowered, but now that there's so many of these buildings that that seem to be overpowered, if you go online, you'll find multiple threads 
toting the different buildings being OP, right? So I think now that there's so many that are OP, it sort of balances it all out. Now, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, that, that'll be up to the player, right? Yeah, that's very much a matter of taste. I remember the same observation being leveled against Glory to Rome, which was a sort of tableau builder where the pitch was every single power is broken. But at the end of the day, what cashes out there is, is a sort of chaotic mess that somehow miraculously works. Uh, and if that, that's definitely an approach to figure uh, to sort of balancing out different buildings. But yeah, I, I as I say, I'm going to have to try Orléans again. It's been a couple of years now, actually. I just wasn't terribly grabbed with it, but it's a popular and enduring system, so maybe there's something there that I'm missing. Uh, the other thing that I tried uh, last week was Mafia de Cuba, which is very much in uh, the sort of social deduction party slash werewolf design space. There are hidden roles. It's about trying to get away with either stealing diamonds or, or, or lying to a mafia boss. Uh, the sort of executive summary that I could give about my impression of it was it reminded me a great deal of the One Night games, like One Night Ultimate Werewolf or even One Night Alien or One Night Resist uh, Resistance. Uh, sorry, One Night Revolution. That's an entire kettle of fish that we have to get into. But in that, as the game was unfolding, I could see the kind of inferences that could, people could make based on the data that was entering the system. And some of those inferences I found fascinating, but it was not an experience I enjoyed playing. Uh, I adore The Resistance. It's one of my all-time favorites. Uh, I will play it at any given opportunity. And the great thing about The Resistance is you have this data set that evolves and as more information into the system, you can start getting more and more details and more and more uh, information and inferences. When you reduce that to one round, a single go-round, as the case of the One Night Games, or a single go-round in the case of Mafia, Mafia de Cuba, there's no evolution of information. It's just a question of people have to come up with a lie on the spot really quickly, and if their lie doesn't gel with the information state, that's it. They've lost. And if somebody else isn't able to make the one right inference, then they're not going to win either. So as I say, I prefer when there's a little bit more of an evolving information state where it's not just one guess and you're you're pooched. Yeah, I've, I've played games that where you get the one chance, right? And sometimes when people aren't socially inept like that and come up, you know, very strong and and get their point across, you know, without a problem, then it really leads to the game breaking down instantly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And sometimes that's the virtue of a little bit of a longer game where people can warm up to it, where uh, they don't necessarily have to be on the spot and dance for their supper right away. Exactly. It's very... That was one of the problems I had with Spyfall, actually. Spyfall is a very, very light, very pleasant game, but the problem is you're going to have an entire table's worth of attention focused on one person, and if that's the new player, it's hard to have, you know, eight sets of eyes boring into you, uh, and you have to you have to perform now. You have to do the lie, or you have to, you have to pass or, or make covers. It's better to, to give them an environment where they can step in and step out of the limelight as, as they feel comfortable. Um, and to a certain extent, I, I, to be honest, Mafia de Cuba allows that. Uh, but at that point, when you're playing Mafia de Cuba and, and you're, you're being told to say, okay, well, what did you see? And you're like, well, I'm not comfortable saying anything. Well, then that, you're not, if that's your only opportunity to contribute, then you're not really contributing to the game, so you might as well not be playing. Anyway, I thought Mafia de Cuba was fine. It was quick. It was relatively inoffensive. But as I say... I'd rather something with a little bit more of an interesting, evolving information state. Gotcha. Now I want to talk about Bunny Kingdom, because it's getting a little bit of hype. I've played it only two times, so I want to make that perfectly clear. Maybe after two times I can't really give a, you know, a, a logical deduction of how the game is, but it really is going to be a game that I will pursue not to play again. 
just because it, it seems to be you have a grid of 10 by 10. It's 100 spaces, so you have 100 cards in the deck for each space. You've got cards, these cards that are called scrolls. You have cards that will give you buildings and more resources on these spaces. And it's a drafting game. You're going to get a hand of 10 cards. You're going to pick two to play and then pass it around. So that means from your hand of 10 cards, you're only going to get two of them back. So there's, I don't think there's any way you can plan on what you're going to get back. You, there's no way you can plan on what you're going to get from the guy beside you. And the swing at the end of the game, where it happened in both games, where one player was at 20 points and the other players were between 120 to 130 points and that player at 20 points won with these scroll cards. You flip them all up and you're going to get anywhere between you know 50 to 100 points with these scroll cards. And when it's in a game where you only score 130 points, it's, you know, there's no way, I, I feel there's no way you can actually plan for that. And so it's just like this big surprise, you know, I actually won. I know you've, you know, played this whole game out thinking that you're doing well. But in fact that, no, I, I've, I've hidden these cards away for the whole game and, and now I win. Yeah, Richard Garfield designed this. I haven't played it yet, but honestly, a lot of what you're saying sounds very much like some of his MO. Richard Garfield loves him the chaos. He loves wild and crazy things happening. This is the same guy, after all, who designed Robo Rally, which is designed almost entirely about nonsense yeah, happening. There, there is an actual card, one of these scroll cards that reads, if you are in second place, you get 10 points. So, surprise, you actually win. Yeah, that's a card. That is a card. And one of the cornerstones, to me, of a good drafting game is the ability to look at your neighbor and figure out what it is that they want. You know, look at their tableau and figure out, okay, this would be especially advantageous for them. But if their scoring conditions, which, as you say, can amount for an overwhelming percentage of your final score, are hidden in secret, how on earth am I supposed to know what it is that anybody else wants? And how on earth am I supposed to prepare for the possibility of me just getting from my initial draw these amazing cards that are going to be worth a tremendous quantity of points for me? And then just bury them and no one knows that I have them. Yeah, there's different levels of building. There's one, two, and three level buildings. And I didn't even see a single level three building in both gameplays that we played. Really? Yeah. Okay, then. Yeah. And that's, so that is Bunny Kingdom. It might be for some people, not for me. Have you liked anything that Garfield has put out? Well, I, I can say I liked Magic, but you know what was out when Magic came out? Yeah. And, I mean... So, just for context, we are, of course, talking about Magic the Gathering. Magic Gathering. And same thing with Robo Rally, right? It came out not soon after, and what else was out at that time, right? Sure. And if you played Robo Rally again, I, I don't think it would be the same experience that I had back when I played it. In his defense, also, Richard Garfield does say that Magic the Gathering is borderline broken. <laughs> well, yeah, I wouldn't even want to try to get back into Magic with all the different abilities it has now and how how instant stack and I don't even I don't even want to get in I don't, I don't want to put myself on the spot I'm already deep right now and I'm gonna with the comments I'm sure but yeah no I wouldn't it's it's a lifestyle game it's not a lifestyle that we engage in no ne not necessarily any judgment on those that do no no they and everyone seems when they do play they seem to be having a lot of fun so it, it, what consenting adults do in their own private time with their own money is entirely their own business and i for one think that it's unfair for people to try to legislate people's private choices i i can only agree sir all right so i guess we're going to go to our feature game our feature game this week is terraforming mars came out over a year ago came out by stronghold do you have the designer there i don't jacob Frexelius. gotcha and what it is, is there's two ways you can play. This was one of its 
bonuses you can do like a drafting what you're doing is you're trying to terraform mars there's a large board there you're putting out forests and lakes and oceans and there's uh, moons orbiting mars and you're putting cities on those and it's a great little tableau builder you're moving cubes around i think it's a great game overall but although that being said i'm not 100 sure why it is a great game i'll make some points now Good close scores. All the games that I played at the end, all the scores have been fairly close. No one's totally run away with a game. If maybe one person's very far behind, but a lot of people are very close. Uh, there's definitely different paths to victory. There's all sorts of different ways you can win. You can go with concentrate on the board, terraforming Mars. You can go with the engines on the side with all your different cards. There's already expansions. There's uh, one expansion already out that gives you two different boards to play on. Uh, which I think are both good. Maybe some people can say all you need is an overlay on the bottom, but I really think the way they moved around the territories and where the oceans and bonuses are, I think that is a is a good point that they made as well. The art style, I think this could be one of the reasons why the game is doing well. Maybe some people don't like the art style. I think it's great. It's like retro. I don't like the color palette, but the art style I do like. And the fact, like I said, what started this was the two different game modes. There's the basic game mode and the advanced game mode where you just get the cards you have. Either you buy them or you don't. Or there's the drafting and there's advanced cards that you can add in and the different corporations. Either you have a basic corporation or an advanced corporation. So I'm going to st stick with just my good points for now. I'll save my bad points for later. I'll let my good colleague come in on, on, on how he loves this awesome game from stronghold yeah so here's the thing about terraforming mars I, I i was shocked i knew that people like it i see it played everywhere not just in our locality but but it's it's played in lots of different places it's always hits the table on cons uh every second picture on twitter is of people playing this game i don't know if that's because stronghold is very good at, at publicizing things on twitter or what but when I looked and I saw that this thing is rated sixth overall on Board Game Geek, not that I care too much about the ratings, but it is a it is a representation yep, of what people sure. are rating. Uh, I was appalled. I couldn't believe that this mediocrity has risen to this level of esteem. I have a couple of guesses though as to why it's gotten there, and let me start with the first thing. And this is an unvarnished positive that I have to say about the game, and possibly the only one. I think the theme is very well done. And it's not a very commonly represented theme. This is a very sort of near-future, hard sci-fi take in a board game. There's lots and lots of science fiction now, which is great. About ten years ago, there wasn't any. There was hardly anything. Um, and you get to do things like put out giant space lasers, or Gauss cannons, or massive grain elevators that go to orbit, or land Deimos on the, the, the surface of Mars. That's all awesome. And when I play the game and I look at some of these cards, whether the ones that I'm playing or other people are playing, that's really cool. And so thematically, I think it gets a lot of things right in terms of the window dressing. And let's be honest, when it comes to Euro games, window dressing is sometimes all you need. It's At the end of the day, it's an engine builder. As you say, you put down a card and it says, look, for every X you put in, you get out Y VPs or whatever. Uh, that's... That's fine, but if you're going to do that, you might as well make it as cool as possible, and I think they've done a great job with that. The cards are neat. As for its widespread popularity, though, I think that one of the reasons why is because the Euro crowd likes it because of the economy building, and then they don't 
tend to notice the flood of random crap that the game consists in to a large extent because the game runs entirely on what cards you get. And you have to build an engine out of these cards that you're getting. Sometimes, as a result of pure chance, because it's a massive deck of cards and you don't see that many of them over the course of a game, which is one of its virtues, it's got a little bit of variety, but that variety results in incredibly high variance. It is entirely possible that the cards are not going to feed you an engine for the first few turns. And at which point, congratulations, you're done, you're pooched. And that's sometimes that's acceptable. Less so in this in, in the case of this game for reasons that I'll get to later, which which makes me actually surprised that you said in your experience all the scores are relatively tight. That has not been my experience with the game. My experience with the game, it hasn't been crushing runaway victories, but simply for the reason that sometimes someone at the table just doesn't get an engine going for the first few turns because the cards aren't there they end up behind the eight ball and they're never really able to recover. Maybe that's just because their experiences of the game have been different, whatever. So so the Euro crowd likes the economy building and that kind of makes them ignore all the randomness to a certain extent because sometimes Euro, Euro games can be very random and hide it very well. We talked about this a bit last time. And I think these, I, I think it can appeal to some, you know, stereotypical Ameritrashers because of this tremendous variety, all these cool cards that enters the game. And so they don't notice that what they're doing is they're playing a relatively pedestrian engine builder. Let me, let me sort of condense this down into uh, more pointed reasons why I don't like it. And I would like you to, to, to tell me if I'm just off base with any of this, because it's possible that I'm just now blinded by a combination of jadedness and having written the thing off. Number one, the game is mostly multiplayer solitaire. For sure. I have that one as my thing. It's the same sort of thing I talked about earlier, was the fact that you are just getting things before other people can get them, i.e. the milestones and the awards at the bottom. This is definitely a game where, just like Orleans, for sure, where you're watching where that first player marker is, and you're checking to see who's got heat and who does not have heat, and you're making sure that it's your turn coming up, and you're grabbing things before other people do. That is the sole interaction of the game, for sure. Yeah, and that's a relatively trivial proportion of your points that you're going to get at the end of the day, the things that you're racing for. Most of it, again, is just a function of the cards that you're going to get. And even when you're drafting, I'll get to more of this later, but even when you're drafting, it's it's mostly a function of what do I have out in front of me? What can I make work? What can I make sing? And yeah, you're racing with other players for some of, these, uh, for some of this board stuff, but that, at the end of the day, is a drop in the bucket in your overall score. Has that... Has that been your experience? It, it could be, but it really could aid your engine. Like if you're if you're not only raising the TR rating, but you're hitting those milestones along the track that also give you an additional benefit, then you know you're doubling down on you know on, on getting that benefit. Fair enough. And let us acknowledge that there is some player interaction in the form of incredibly arbitrary, grotesquely stupid. Take that nonsense. It's, With the action cards, yes. Yeah, some of the action cards are just you know steal some resources from some player, and it's the most incredibly superficial take that element in a euro builder in an engine builder I, I can ever imagine it's just it sticks out like a sore thumb when compared to the rest of the rest of the design because it's there's precious little reason to target one player or another uh, for one thing uh, a person's final score is not immediately evident there's some resources that you can see you can see someone's TR rating and all that other stuff but you, you know there's so many things going into the game that Typically, I've found in the times where someone's about to deploy one of the silly, like, steal two plants from somebody, everyone then starts whining about how it may look like they're winning, but they're not. It just doesn't belong in the game. It's just no, badly done. I have to agree. I've never seen an instance where someone's played that card in order to stop someone from doing something and enabling them to do it instead. I've not seen that happen yet. 
Yeah, and I, I really think it was a design effort to introduce more player interaction. It's just it's in the exact wrong way. Yeah, almost tacked. Not tacked. Seems tacked on. For yeah. sure. Which leads actually to my next criticism, which is that the board, you know, the actual Mars that you're terraforming, with all these tiles that you can lay down, which introduces, I, I should point out, a non-trivial amount of rules grit about what can be placed where and how much each tile is uh, uh, scored. I find it almost irrelevant at the end of the day. Now, it can, it can be worth a substantial source of points, but placing a tile in one place as opposed to another, usually it's a difference of one or two points uh, of, of one place over another, so it doesn't really matter all that much. And so that, that bothers me not just because it introduces rules grit for very little payoff competitively. It, it also, I find, just unsatisfying in terms of components. And, and theme. You've got this giant map of Mars that at the end of the day doesn't matter a whole heck of a lot and doesn't tend to be determinative. You could have easily have abstracted it away to say that every time you place a forest, you get some number of points and that's, that's, that's the end of it. Maybe that's just me being a bad player. I don't know. I've never seen any... I've, I, certainly while playing, I've never had the experience and I've never seen anyone else really dominate someone by clever tile placement. It's true. That is true, but the new boards, they do give you uh, uh, incentive to build in certain areas on the map. Could you go into more detail about that? Because well, I've not say, played the new maps. Well, the new maps, they have uh, uh, one of the victory conditions is building in the you know the southern area. If you have the most buildings in that particular area, then you're going to get the, the, the award. So. Oh, really? Yeah, so, so, it, it, so there is a competition for that bottom area of the map. Wait, 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 wait. You mean... Player interaction that's not pointless, arbitrary, take that nonsense. Exactly. And a reason to build in one place as opposed to another. Covers all of those points. Well, there you go. That that might actually lead to a substantive improvement in my eyes. So uh, congratulations on that. At least they're going in the right direction. Uh, so yay, I guess. Um, my other big problem with the game, and this is largely... Uh, I've, I've alluded to this before... It's much too long for what is at heart a relatively high-variance game. Uh, I hear people talk about how they can get a five-player game done in two hours. My hat's off to them. I don't know who they're playing with. I have Most of the three- or four-player games are at least 90 to 120 minutes. I don't know how long it would take if you had four or five players who really knew the game inside and out. And really knew what they were doing. Now, of course, I would not be in that game because I, I, I'm not interested in developing that level of facility with the game, obviously, based on my lack of enthusiasm. But it's it's a substantial game. It's not it's not automatic. You know, it's not a three-hour monster. Although, for what it's worth, I've seen plenty of games run three hours. And let's let's be frank. Even people who like the game, I don't think they could honestly say with a straight face that this game can hold up to three hours of play. That is Definitely much not. too long. Yeah. And even at 90 to 120 minutes, I think it's too long. Because if it is the case that this is an engine builder where the cards might not give you an engine, you don't want a game like that to last more than, I'd say, 75 to 80 minutes. 90 is pushing it. 120 is definitely too long. Because if you, if the game just said its fire hose of cards in your face and said, I'm just going to deluge you with crap, then that's not an entertaining two-hour prospect. I don't think that the game can bear under that much length. No, you definitely need a whip. I'm the whip in this game, and I've... I've pushed games through, like even uh, just uh, a couple weeks ago, I was teaching two new people and two people I've already played, mm -hmm. and we did get done in under two hours. Oh, congratulations. 
as long this... as you have that one person that's saying, okay, you know, you have to make your decision and, you know, and, you know, if it's something that doesn't matter or going to affect the next player, the next player can, you know, start their turn and, and so forth. Yeah, it is. I mean, it is amazing, just as an aside, what somebody really, cracking the whip, as you say, can really do to a game's length. Uh, I once played a uh, five-player game of Hansa Teutonica in 40 minutes, and that was that was interesting. It was good. I, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, and I'm not averse to being under circumstances where people are pressured to play as fast as possible, so long as it's, it's gentle pressure. And I've seen uh, Walker apply whips. They're, they're velvet-coated, and he uses the, nothing but the softest of bondage tape. It's very... That's right. Uh, I, you know, I, it's I, almost I, intimate, actually, <laughs> when you think about it. Well, the way you do it, the, eye, the constant eye contact, <laughs> That's I right. find, yeah, actually. you, you got to know your crowd. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but that having been said, I would much rather play a game that can last 90 minutes and deserves its 90 minutes than, you know, have to force people to speed up uh, for a game that really is, is longer than it should be. Which brings me to sort of my, the, the summation of my criticism of Terraforming Mars, and that is that if you want a Euro-style engine builder... You are spoiled for choice, and I don't know why people are going to Terraform. Well, I kind of do. Again, it's the theme. But setting the theme aside, I don't understand why it's getting as much play as it is. Because uh, the one thing that jumps out to me immediately is that 10 years ago, Race for the Galaxy was released. And Race for the Galaxy is a Euro-style engine, building, uh, engine builder with, indeed, some of the same problems that Terraforming Mars has. You need to build an engine out of the cards that are given to you in Race for the Galaxy. But... Race of the Galaxy has two very salient differences that are really huge in terms of mitigating that problem. Number one, you can devote resources more easily into drawing more cards. You can spend, there's an opportunity cost, of course, but the ability to control your card influx is much more central to the way that Race of the Galaxy works in Terraforming Mars. You can get more cards in Terraforming Mars. It can be done. Uh, but it's not nearly as flexible as the way that Race of the Galaxy does it. And the other thing about Race of the Galaxy is it takes 30 minutes to play. And I find a 30-minute game of Race for the Galaxy infinitely more satisfying than the 90 to 120 minutes that Terraforming Mars does. There's more player interaction, there's just as much variety in the cards, and there's just the same plurality of strategies. And if you get hosed by card draws, number one, there's something you can do about it, and number two, worst case scenario, you're going to be done in 20 minutes. And so I don't understand. This, I think, when people complain about the cult of the new, on Board Game Geek, you know, the, the constant rush to try out the new game and, and, and letting older games die on the vine. Normally, I'm like, yeah, whatever, because I'm very much in that in that crowd. I'm very much, of, I, I like playing new games, and I'm always trying new stuff. But it, if, if we're at a time when people are, are devouring and praising Terraforming Mars to the skies, when there is Race for the Galaxy from 2007, through the ages even, from, uh, you know, 2006 or the newer one in 2015, which is only slightly longer than Terraforming Mars, and again has more player interaction, more substantive player interaction, more routes to victory. Uh, one I really like is Ginkopolis from 2012. It's also a drafting um, uh, tableau builder that has more player interaction, has more relevance on the board. It doesn't have quite the variety of card effects, but sometimes I think that's an advantage. I just don't understand uh, why through why uh, all these 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 games don't get played anymore to a large extent, and Terraforming Mars has just had this persistent appeal. It baffles well, me. Well, from from us from us talking here, what the other thing I've I've seen is it's something you've created. Like at the end of the game, you've created your own engine, and you've all worked together to create this planet. And uh, how things uh, 
evolve over time during that game is a real thing. Like it all sort of makes sense. Like now that now that you know it's a certain temperature, now these things can be used. There's there's this this uh, I don't know. It's definitely a feeling that you get. Like oh, there's enough oxygen to support animals now, and there's enough. Now there's you know now it's warm enough that this ice is melting, and all these things sort of make sense. And you, you know it's this it's this this journey that everyone at the table's gone on to create this planet. I think that is definitely one of the reasons why this game is doing so well. You, you bring up a good point in terms of the prerequisites. You know, some cards can only be played when there's enough oxygen, or some cards can, can only be played when there isn't much oxygen. And I'm of two minds about that. On the one hand, it is kind of cool that there's this thematic integration and this notion of being able to plan for uh, a card that might be playable later on or to opportunistically jump on a card that's only available now and will be unplayable later. So that's kind of neat. But by the same token, it just increases the variance. You're only going to get a certain number of cards over the course of the game. And if you get a card near the end that's literally unplayable because the planetary conditions don't allow it anymore, then congratulations, you have a dead card. I don't... That's not especially fun to me. No, you could, true. You can choose not to buy it, but like you said, it also leads to one of the cards that you could could have got instead of. Yeah, it's the game introducing an opportunity cost when there's already a relatively static influx of cards that you're relying on. And ultimately, this notion of creating a shared enterprise, I'll grant you, has some thematic appeal. But mostly at the end of the game, when I look at Mars, you know, we have the Mars that we've built and I look at it, I just see a whole bunch of tiles that... Uh, didn't really matter much at the end of the day anyway. As I said, the tile placement element of the game, I love me some tile placement games, but the tile placement element of the game, again, just feels not significant enough for the amount of rules grit that it introduces. Uh, maybe with the expansions, it's better. Maybe with the expansions, you get to look at the, the board and say, oh, it's interesting how this developed and not the other way. Uh, but basically, what you've got in a game of Terraforming Mars is a strip in the middle where you always and only build water, and, uh, you know, forests pop up here and there, and that's pretty much it. I mean, uh, even a game like uh, Stevenson's Rocket, which is a relatively... And I say this with all enthusiasm for Stevenson's Rocket. It's one of my favorite games. Uh, it was kickstarted recently. It's, there's going to be a new edition, you know, just after Chinese New Year, no doubt. Uh, but you can look at a game of Stevenson's Rocket. You can look at a game of Tigers and Euphrates and look at what happened over the course of the game and make inferences and know who did what and why and what pressure points were applied. I don't get that from looking at the board in Terraforming Mars, and, and that kind of undercuts any notion of my having created a shared project. Am I just being a curmudgeon? No, not at all. And when you were saying that, it also leads to the same... Sometimes it leads to the same problem as uh, Blood Rage, where you have someone doing very minor actions in order to uh, be the la only the only player taking actions at the end of a turn. Mm. Like you can sell a card, sell a card, do all your minor actions. Same thing in Blood Rage, you do a whole bunch of minor actions, keeping all your rage until everyone is passed and out, and then you doing whatever you need to do without them even being able to react at all. So it also has that problem. And the other thing we have not talked about is the the quality of the game components in the Oi. game itself. Oi, indeed. Like, Stronghold, seriously, what? is going on like the box is concave like the the cardboard is so thin on the box the player sheets like who doesn't have an upgrade package of some kind to make it even playable without the cube sliding all over the place the color palette everything being brown like uh i sent someone to gen con to pick this up when it was first released we knew that there was going to be three mars games released this year this was the one that i was going to buy i had no uh, i didn't read about it knew nothing about it 
I opened up this box and literally was, I said like, you know, why did I, why was I the one that was forced to get this one? I literally put just the stuff back in the box and put it on the shelf. And there it stood until I saw some of the, you know, the hype going on. I said, okay, well, let's give this, let's pull this out. Uh, when I did pull it out again, half of my cards were not even cut properly. Like the top right hand corner has a square edge. Yeah. They've, they've sorted that out, right? That, that has not recurred. No. Good. Yeah, but even even the cardstock, I recall, not being yeah, terribly yeah, good to begin with. Yeah, it's, it's unfortunate because I don't understand why uh, companies put out inferior cardstock products, especially when you're talking about how the game is primarily driven by cards. And this is not a problem that Stronghold generally has. No. Stronghold's games, I, I, I'm trying to... The other Stronghold games that I have, and I, I have a number of their games and I enjoy them a great deal, their components are, are generally very good. I don't know what happened with Terraforming Mars, and it's especially since you know it's a full price product. It's game. It, it, it's reasonably expensive, um, and they have, despite that, they have difficult. They seem to have had difficulty keeping it in stock after it was uh, originally released. So I guess it didn't hurt them at the end of the day. And well, I think the one problem with that is that even though once it did do well, there's no way they can change the way the game goes because if they were to put out which they are putting out any expansions they all have to match up with every edition of the game and they can't suddenly make the cards better or change things because it will not the expansions will not work with with everyone's copy so once the, once they the initial edition went out then their hands were were tied in a way yeah do we want to give a brief plug to your amazing insert that you bought oh uh to broken token and their fantastic uh terraforming mars box insert yeah, very nice. I also have some pictures up if people want to know how to uh, make it nice colored with colored gels and behind all the different boxes to make it pop out that much nicer. Yeah, we should actually, that's a good point. We should put that up on our Facebook group uh, so people can see what you did because, again, I don't have a whole lot of enthusiasm for the game and I don't really have a whole lot of enthusiasm for custom inserts for most games, but they, the, the broken token setup that you have, everyone's player board is now beautifully upgraded in, in lovely etched wood, so you don't have to worry so much about uh, cubes sliding around as much anymore. Everything's got its own place for it. And since most of the time you're staring at your own output in your own engine, it's a very, very nice visual upgrade. It's not just an insert. I think it's it's a disservice to call it that. It, it upgrades all the player boards as well. Exactly, yeah. No, I th and it's almost a must in this game. As far as I'm concerned, like when you... Like I said, everyone anyone bumps the table, or you're constantly you know dealing cards around, passing cards around, passing resources around. You know your stuff's gonna get moved around. It was it here, was it there? You know. Yeah, yeah. If you're a sad, benighted soul who is under the misbegotten impression that Terraforming Mars is a good game, and or if you're a sad, unfortunate soul who's made to play it on the regular, uh, we heartily recommend getting the Broken Token uh, insert. And again, I don't normally recommend them. I own one custom insert in the entirety of my uh, several hundred board game collection. I, most of the time, I think they're a waste of money. Uh, but in this case, it's great. Just the upgrades, the player board that it gives is, is fabulous. I recommend it unreservedly. And plus, like I said, I have this, this flow chart here, which scientifically proves that if you don't like Terraforming Mars, you're a baby eater. See, if you follow this line right here, yeah. Where it says you don't like terraforming. Yeah, that's Mars. me. That's me right yeah, there. Right yeah. there. Yeah. And over here it says baby eater. Oh. Okay. Obviously. The Shit. There is a line. You're yeah. right. There is a line between those two boxes. Yeah. This is very compelling evidence. Exactly. I don't. Oh man. Do you want to be a baby eater? Well, I mean, but I am. I. I don't think it's a question of wanting or not wanting. It's, it's science, you, you right? Could, you could change your your out view on terraforming Mars and say you like it. This is. Uh, you're rocking my world here, well, uh, Walker. See, I just, it's the power of the flowchart is, is is. 
undisputable. I'm just going to have to reconsider my life, uh, you know, reconsider your, your, my view of Terraforming Mars. Exactly. And or what I'm having for dinner tonight. So thank you for opening my eyes. No problem. I, that's what I'm here for, man. I'm here to keep you on the straight and narrow and show you the error of your way, sir. <sighs> that's very, very kind of you. Well, I think that's all we have to say about Terraforming Mars. I think so. Uh, L- let's uh, let, let's have a, a brief check-in on our Patreon campaign. Um, we've recently uh, just raised under $53,000. Thank you very much for your support. So as a result of this, we'll be abandoning our format entirely. Uh, we'll be doing uh, quarterly podcasts now. We're, we're going to be changing our release schedule also with all new hosts. So we're not going to do them anymore, and it's going to be quarterly. Um, it's also the case that uh, our very popular feature of asking for uh, a live play... We our larger our largest donor an R Duterte of Manila uh, apparently we're going to be doing a live play of Russian roulette. Sweet. I'm not well. I'm not looking forward to that, but uh, uh, you know the donors demand it, so I guess I guess. Well, I'm not familiar on the rules of that, but it sounds like a very interesting game. Uh, You know how I like to go first, so I think only because I don't know the rules. You said you 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 know the rules, right? That's a good point. And I don't know that, so I think make sure I get the first turn. Fair enough. I think that's a that's a reasonable compromise. Thank God. You know, it sounds like it's going to be a fantastic game. All right, so now we're going to go on to the news. News, we already talked about Necromunda is now out. It came out this week. Don't be uh, off-put by its board game look. Look a bit into it. It's uh, Unfortunately, what they did, they put the rule book in the main box. It's not going to be separate. For now, they might pull the normal Games Workshop thing where you know they're not, they're not announcing that it's going to come out separately. They're waiting probably for everyone to buy the main box at $150 Canadian, $125 American, and then suddenly uh, make the rulebook available separate after the fact. But for now, rulebook's only in the main box, and you can get the the Ganger book separate in order for you to do the full 3D, full campaign. Seems like they've just streamlined, from what I I listened to a, 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 a video review of it, and it looks like as though it's very similar to the old Necromunda. Just made it more streamlined. Looks like it's going to be great. In other news, we finally have more detail on the long-announced, eagerly-awaited Imperial Assault app. Uh, It's got a title, uh, Legends of the Alliance. FFG says it's going to be available soon, whatever that means. They only only give concrete announcements of things when things are relatively close to being done, though, so I can't imagine it'll take too long. No, and they also put the rulebook out for it as well, so it's got to be... It's got to be soon. Yeah, it's got to be imminent. A lot of people have been looking forward to this. I might give it a shot. I'm not a huge fan of their uh, Descent slash Imperial Assault format. I'm not a huge fan of the way Imperial Assault interprets the Star Wars universe. Uh, but I like me some co-op miniature stuff, so I'll probably give it a shot sooner or later. I know that you're a big Imperial Assault fan, Walker. I am. Love Imperial Assault. Love the fact there's two game modes, the skirmish and the regular mode, and the fact that it's now going to be app-driven and everyone's going to do co-op. We love because we just finished a full Descent co-op app game. Everyone seems to like it. So, And then I've got the new Scythe expansion coming out, hard date on the 5th. Yeah. And not only that, the new Super Big Box is also now shipping. So that's going to be out for just in time for that expansion as well. So lots of Scythe stuff, keeping that game alive. So that's always good news. Yeah, I'm generally opposed to uh, buying boxes for things, uh, but... You know, it might be necessary in this case. I'm, I'm, let me just ask you a question though about this. I am inordinately bothered by the fact that there's only one airship sculpt for Scythe. And I realize this is grotesquely petty. But I don't think it's petty at all. Okay. Like, are you, are you, are you kidding me right now? Like, how popular is this game? How many copies went out? How many deluxe copies? How many expansions have people bought? How many upgraded kits have people bought? And now you're going to put on an expansion when you have seven distinct 
uh, units and things people can take, and you're going to make the airship the same for the best, I think they totally dropped the ball on this. And what's bizarre is this is a game that already has tremendous faction differentiation. The meeples are all different, for crying out loud. Exactly. And I'm not complaining... Make no mistake, I'm not complaining that the Severn, different, Severn meeples are different. Well, I'm I'm just confused at the sudden decision to not follow through well, with that. They can make the argument that it's it's one uh, block that they have to make, right, for the sculpt, right? And so oh, they, of course they just there's... inject different plastic. Of but come on, you can make one sprue that has that has seven different models on it, and it's still one block, right? It's, it's just a matter of paying the sculptor to make the seven different... Models. Like I'm not. I'm not an engineer, and I'm not. Never worked at one of these factors. I don't know if that's the only thing is, but I'm sure making one block for one model would be the same as making a slightly larger one that has seven different ones in it. Well, the distribution costs and the assembly costs would probably also go up. I and mean, obviously, this was a decision about money. I, I, I've never heard, nor could I even imagine, an aesthetic justification for all the ships looking the same. I've seen on Board Game Geek some people sharing uh, 3D printer files for different sculpts for all the different nations. That looks great. Uh, but it's amazing that of all games, say what you want about Scythe. And I like it a lot. I don't know. It has its problems. It's not my favorite game of all time, but I enjoy it. And I most people that I played with enjoy it a fair deal. You could never accuse them of skimping on the visuals. No. It's a beautiful game, rendered beautifully, and they've devoted a tremendous amount of attention to detail in terms of rendering the different factions and making them look different. Again, I mean... Anytime you know that there are seven different shapes of meeples, you know that they care a great deal about this. It's such a bizarre and strange development. Yep, it's definitely odd. I, I have already looked online a couple of times to get alternate models for... Because you type in, you know, just type in airship models and you'll get all sorts of different games and all sorts of things. So, you know, maybe I'll still plan on, on you know, putting them in the box so they do have difference. But for now, we're stuck with everyone having the exact same blueprint of the same skyship on the board. Which, I, in my opinion, can only take away from the visual effect of the game. Yeah, and, and if it were another game, I would shrug and say, I'd rather they be different, but this is okay. And it's still okay. Like, it's not yeah, a, it's not gonna affect, sin. Yeah, it's not going to affect any of the it's, gameplay. It's but... just strange and jarring and discordant. Yeah. And I don't know why they did... Well, as, as I say, I know why they did it that way, but it's, it seems like a bizarre choice. Especially since, at this point... Um, this isn't even just a question about how much money is going to be made, but he must have a pretty good idea about how many units he'll move. Given that he has the sales data for the first expansion, and he has got to have information about pre-orders from all the distributors and such, I don't know a whole lot about the business, but this just seems like a strange... It's strange. Yeah. Let us now move on to dexterity games and why they're so fun. So, I've got a couple thoughts about sort of the big picture idea about why dexterity games are so fun. Just for context, Walker and I have been playing a lot of dexterity games lately. Indeed, ever since I think I, I first picked up Junk Art, which in many ways is uh, really sort of a culmination of a lot of different design trends in dexterity games. This was put out last year by uh, Jacob Me and Sen Fung Lem and uh, put out by Pretzel. Junk Art, in, in some ways, is sort of the ultimate stacking game because it has lots of different ways to stack things and the components are really great. More on that game later. But one of the, the, the sort of general ideas is that dexterity games unabashedly give you permission to play with toys. And that has always been part of the appeal for me as a board gamer. Sometimes it doesn't even matter how pretty the bits are. It's just I get to play with bits. And it's an experience, it's a tactile experience that video games just can't replicate. And dexterity games really double down on this idea of creating a board game experience that's very tactile, that relies on 
visually appealing and fun to manipulate elements. And for every board gamer who's taken their pieces and just started fiddling with them on the side, that's what a dexterity game is to a large extent, taking exactly, your pieces yeah. and fiddling yeah, with them. You know, if you have people in your group that are constantly stacking their meeples or stacking their dice during their downtime, dexterity games is something that you definitely need to introduce them to. Absolutely. Now, that having been said, um, I do find it very interesting that I've encountered a number of board gamers who clearly think they're too good for dexterity games. They wouldn't necessarily put it in those terms, but uh, these are the same people who uh, generally will turn down their nose at any game they feel is, is, is too silly. But setting that aside, some people, I've encountered some people that just refuse to take any, refuse to try to commit themselves to any sort of play experience involving a dexterity game, which I think is, is kind of tragic and reveals a sort of bankruptcy of moral character. True, I've seen many people have the same problem when they try to uh, rate a game, like how good is a game over another game, and they and they can't separate games into different categories. Like this, you know, this game, you know, Scythe doesn't measure up to Junkard, of course, because they're totally mm. different games, and there's so many different games that are like that. you got to rate the game within its own category. And like I said, I've, I put dexterity games into two groups, which is the motorized... Motor, uh, speed motor skill games and stacking games, right? So you have your speed games that, you know, you got to grab something fast like Ghost Splits mm -hmm. or, you know, stacking games like Junk Art or Meeple Circus or any of those types of games. Where do, where do flicking games fall under this division? For I you? put that under motorized, like things like Catacombs or or the games like that where you're uh, Crocono type games. I put that under motorized skill games. Absolutely. So that actually is uh, talking about catacombs, I think, is, is an interesting topic because I've actually had a great deal of difficulty finding audiences for those truly innovative games that marry dexterity game elements with strategy game elements. Uh, there have been a couple of instances. Uh, Rampage or Terran Meeple City has a little bit of an area majority thing, not not much. But I'm thinking mostly about Ascending Empires, which uh, is was a, a great game put out in 2011 by Ian Cooper at Z-Man. Ascending Empires is a 4X game, so it has the science fiction empire trappings. You develop tech, and the tech has consequences. It's not the heaviest 4X game, but it is actually a 4X game. The only difference between it and a normal 4X game is the way you move your ships is by flicking them. Your ships are wooden discs, and you flick them around the board, which, parenthetically, not only is a sort of genius innovation for dexterity games, it also helps avoid some of the problems of 4X games, because sometimes in 4X games, it's very hard to get fleets to move great distances, and so you're stuck in your little corner. In Ascending Empires, if you want to go to the other side of the board, go ahead, try to make the shot. If you can, if you can make it, you can go. If not, well, then you can just be conservative and puddle around in the corner. Uh, Catacombs is the same way. You know, it's the dungeon crawl where instead of making an attack you have to flick your disc into somebody. And I found that the audience for these kinds of games is often vanishingly small. Because you have to find the people that want to flick things and also want to play a strategy game on top of that. Which is right up my alley, but a lot of people don't like that. True, it's very... I think all dexterity games are very on the fence. Either people love them or they hate them. It's a very uh, dividing genre. Yeah, it's extremely polarizing. You're exactly right. One of the ways... A related issue I find, and you talked about Meeple Circus, which is a, a, a very recent release. I enjoyed Meeple Circus, but to me, it kind of did the opposite uh, thing from Ascending Empires and Catacombs. Because it introduced a level of scoring complexity into the game. Not in terms of, not in terms of too much complexity, but uh, when we were playing, for example... I looked at the scorecards, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to satisfy these like a recipe. It was like, it was, it was almost like baking. It's like, I'm going to do exactly this. Okay, done. You, on the other hand, and I think it's worth noting, I think people at home need to know, 
uh, Michael Walker is some kind of genius at stacking things. He is some sort of savant when it comes to putting wood on top of other wood. Interpret that however you will. Because he's he's unbeatable in junk art, first of all, which is uh, a stacking game par excellence. And the things that he's able to pull off, the entire table will be watching him, holding that piece of game, there's no way it's going to work. There's no way it's going to work. And then he just pulls it off somehow. And then, and then again and again and again and again. Meeple Circus, he was doing the same thing. He was stacking things in ways that I never thought possible. But it wouldn't pay off because the scoring conditions of the game don't amount to make the tallest or most impressive feature. It's satisfy these conditions. And I'm, you know, unsurprisingly between the two of us, I'm far more of the sort of boring accountant. It's like, okay, here are the victory conditions. I'm going to pursue them with a single-mindedness. You, on the other hand, quite reasonably looked at this pile of toys and says, let me play. That's right. It's like, they don't think I can do this. Let me prove them wrong. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think it's a bit of a shame. I enjoyed Meeple Circus, but I think it's a bit of a shame when a dexterity game fights the natural inclination yeah. we have, which is to play with the cool toys. It like limits you, yeah. Yeah. And it sh there should be an overlap between how visually impressive the thing you've done is and how rewarding it is for the game. Sure, I'm wondering why that's why they threw in the red Meeple, right? He's sort of like the try to stack the different components on top of each other and get the red guy on top for the extra points, maybe. Maybe that's how they, they've... Uh, try to uh, offshoot that, offset that problem. Maybe. But I, I just, I played Meeple Circus again. I thought it was fun. One of the worst rule books that I've read in a very long time. Yes. Part of it, uh, parenthetically I should note, uh, I looked up the original French version of the, the, the Meeple Circus rule, rule book. It explained some of the rule problems, but not others. And fascinatingly, some rules are only present in English and not in French. And I don't know how that happened. Because the original's in French, so I don't know why on earth that, that worked that way. That is also odd. Uh, they, they translated, just for context, they translated retourner, which in, in a French context just means turn over, to return. So the, the English rules tell you to, uh, when it's time to flip up the card for the next round, the English rules literally tell you, return that card. But the mean is turn over, they don't mean return. Anyway, we managed to figure it out. Yeah, I just... It's just an awkward balance between the fun thing and the thing that will help you win. And I hate it when games do that. Yeah, I feel like that's a problem with uh, most dexterity games. Really? Well, I mean, like the, the part about where you said you like Meeple Circus, but you're not, probably not eager to play it again. I think they all fall into the same category where some board games you can return to almost every time and have a, have a, uh, a great experience, different, po different ways to victory. Whereas dexterity games, you can really overplay it even in just one night. Dexterity, almost all dexterity games. I can't think of one that doesn't fall in this category where you bring it out maybe once a month. I've even seen other reviews say the same thing. You bring out Meeple Circus most once a month, play it a couple times, and you put it back on your shelf. Make sure, you know, everyone, you know, because if you overplay it, people are going to start to have a, a bad time. Hmm. I, I guess that might explain why we're both so fond of junk art, because junk art does have all these different ways to play. Now, granted, you're still stacking things on top of things, but it does shake up the, the, the setup enough that you do get the sense of variety. Now, unfortunately, this also means that you're constantly referring back to the rulebook about how these different games play, and when I'm playing a simple game, I don't want to have to do that. But it is one of the virtues that it gives some degree of, of variety. Uh, I, I guess you're right. I don't notice that as much, largely because, as I say, I'm kind of in the cult of the new, and I'm always trying new stuff anyhow. Uh, but maybe I guess dexterity games do have a, a shorter burnout. There are ways to get around it, though. I mean, some games have uh, scenarios, like the flick 'em up games have different scenarios and they play out slightly differently. Um, 
the the co-op version, by the way, uh, Flick Em Up Dead of Winter, is great. I, I haven't had a chance to try it. I'm dying to try it. I really like... The other element of the design space, though, that, that I think is really fascinating in dexterity games is the co-op dexterity games. And uh, I've I've played two. One of them is Flip Ships, which is kind of like a Space Invaders type deal where you're flicking ships on top of other ships to, 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 to nuke them. Uh, the one I like better, though, is Flick Em Up Dead of Winter, where the zombies are controlled by the game system in a fascinating way. They, they basically fall out of this tower. And where, they, where you put the tower to have the zombies fall out is a function of uh, basically how risky your behaviors are. If you're engaging in risky behavior, well, then they're going to fall out really close to you. And as they fall out, if they knock you over, that's how you take damage. So the zombies don't move, per se. They're dumped into a tower that then distributes them over the course of, of the field. And... It's got a, some of the other Dead of Winter trappings, like special powers, and I haven't played any of the co- the competitive scenarios. There are later competitive scenarios with a traitor and all this other stuff. That stuff, uh. yeah, that stuff doesn't look as well done. I'm gonna keep an open mind and give it a shot when I can. But the co-op stuff is is really fun, and it's interesting to see how people take dexterity elements and introduce them into co-op games or into strategy games or into other other kinds of games. Just the other other night when we were playing Too Many Bones, which is a co-op, well, calling it a strategy game might be over overblowing up, but it's a co-op adventure game. And just randomly, I hadn't experienced this before. This was your first time playing. We flipped over a card that said, this challenge is a dexterity challenge. Take components from the game and line them up this way and try to flick them into each other. I was blown away. I loved it. Exactly. Yeah, that was awesome. But by the same token... Uh, I could hear in the back of my head a number of people that I've played with before uh, who would just be... Who would be horrified. Who would be horrified <laughs> yeah. and start shitting all over it right away. It's like, exactly. this is dumb. I don't want... This is dumb and stupid. And to be fair, it is kind of dumb and stupid, but it's great. And if you don't have enough room in your heart for, for, for stupidity and dumbness in, in board games at all, then I feel bad for you. True. but And then you can also say Maple Circus takes it to that other level again, right? With some of those, the end... The end scenarios where you're like getting up and clapping and jumping and doing things with one hand. Yep. You know, where you, you've gotten other, you know, hardcore board gamers to get at least to the stacking part. And then you pull out this third deck and you're just regretting flipping these over and explaining to them how now they have to make clucking noises and, and spin around and do all sorts of other things, you know, in front of other people. Maybe taking it a bit, you know, great for a family game, not so much in a, in a board game setting. Yeah, you're right. Those were admittedly extremely goofy. Uh, the other the other problem I had with them, and this is just a very, very minor gripe, is that relied exclusively on the use of the app. And again, since part of the reason why I like dexterity games is because they are these unabashedly analog, non-digital experience, the combination of a dexterity game with an app struck me as particularly strange. I generally don't like having to use apps in board games as a rule, uh, but that that combination especially I, I thought was. You can call it just like a timer. We were talking. I, I was talking earlier about Project Elite, which I'm going to throw in as a dexterity game. You, there is strategy elements, but there's a timer in it, right? And you have this real time rolling dice as fast as you can, moving the models around, which is you can compare that to Meeple Circuits. Just a timer, whereas you can they've so they've just put that into an app where they, it plays you music to get you more in the mood of of the circus, right? You could just put a timer on it and say, okay, well, you have this much time to do it, and then you're done, right, where there wouldn't be any music. Yeah, that's a fascinating point. I'd never really thought of the real-time dice-rolling games like uh, Project Elite or like Escape, which was which is probably the best-known one 
uh, or even the end stages of games like Pit Crew. Pit Crew is a recent game where basically your reward for finishing early is you get to start rolling a die as fast as you can and maybe advancing. But you're right, that is basically a dexterity element. There's skill to rolling and resolving dice quickly in very much the same way that flicking something accurately is rewarding. Uh, there's there's a guy I know back in Boston uh, who rolls dice fairly, but faster than any other than anybody else I've ever seen. He's got this bizarre technique where he just kind of picks it up and throws it a little bit in the air, um, and it, it's un, it's definitely a fair result. But he does it much much faster than I can do. And uh, I, I when you initially mentioned Project Elite as a dexterity game, I thought, no, surely that's not right. But no, it, it, you 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 make a strong point. And the only point I want to make is is the immediate resolution, or why people enjoy dexterity games. It's this immediate resolution, is the fact that something topples over, or you get that last piece on, and it's like an immediate gratification. You can, exactly, there's no hidden victory points. There's nothing going to pop out at the last minute. You see the guy doing it. And you see the structure taking place. You're building something together, or you're making that. The other thing, the other point I was going to make, you never hear stories about, oh, I can't believe, you know, he pulled that last building out in Orleans, but you do hear the stories like, oh my God, can you believe he pulled that piece out and, and stacked that on top and, and it didn't fall over. You know, there are stories about dexterity games where there might not be so much stories about, you know, other games. Yep. We didn't also talk about that Rhino, what's the new Rhino game? I, what's the name of it? Rhino Hero Super Battle. We did not talk about Rhino Hero Super Battle. Oh, it's a Haba game. You know, if you have not tried it, find someone, buy this game. You will not be disappointed if you like dexterity games at all. Yeah, well, Rhino, Rhino Hero does one of the things that I like about dexterity games, which is using components in clever ways. It's all cards, and some cards are folded to uh, provide foundations for other cards, and so it's kind of like a house of cards on steroids. And you almost always end up with a very impressive structure that's very high, and everyone wants to come around and see what's going on. It's a very simple game. Uh, great with kids, I would imagine. I don't really play with kids because uh, there's something about a, a court order saying I can't be around children. I know. I, I, technicality, I'm sure. Um, it was designed, uh, it was released this year. It was designed by, I, I mentioned this because I think it's a great name, Scott Frisco and Steven Strumpf. Is Scott Frisco not the best name? It really is. It's like, this is another release from Scotty Frisco. It, yeah, it, yeah. Anyway, fabulous yeah. game. Board, board game designer or baseball player, take your pick. Yeah, exactly. And that relates to another element, this instant gratification of dexterity games uh, and how we all get to revel in these amazing plays. One of the other virtues of dexterity games is it allows you to revel in the, unfor in the fortunate accident, right? In a strategy game, if you make a mistake, whatever. You can't play the card, you can't afford this thing, and nothing happens. If you make a mistake in a dexterity game, number one, something interesting will probably happen, and number two, sometimes it's even good. It's like, I wasn't aiming for that, but I'll take it. And so you just get to see more fun stuff happen. And as much as I love strategy games, as much as I love the the, the deep, crunchy, heavy think pieces, if you make a mistake, nothing happens, usually. Uh, or nothing fun, anyway. But in dexterity games, something fun is always going to happen. Yeah, like, you know, like a die veering off into this giant structure, you know, when it's just supposed to be a side thing and toppling the entire structure. That that's a, uh, that was that was fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Walker here is, is bitching about... <laughs> Here's the problem. Having pointed out that Walker is some kind of savant at sacking things, he, he now has it taken into his head that any time he doesn't win, <laughs> it must be some sort of cosmic injustice. Exactly. We were playing Rhino Hero Super Battle, which has some dice in it, and uh, this champion over here that I'm sitting next to 
takes the die and he chucks it basically right into the foundation of the building, causing everything to collapse. I, well, I want to take into account that this is a die with rounded corners, which it's should a be poor illegal. man that blames his tools. Should be illegal. Rounded corners on dice should be illegal. Just saying, putting that out there. You realize blaming the components for no, an dexterity no. game is the ultimate cop out. That's just absurd. That's just the way it rolls. Literally. <sighs> that was that was awful. You're a terrible man, and you do terrible things to the English language, and you did not win that game of Rhino Hero Super Battle, and you'll never live that down. <sighs> It'll be the only one I never win. I'm going to carve it into your tombstone that you lost a game of Rhino Hero Super Battle. Yeah, I saw that you wrote the date down on the rule book. I, I thought that was kind of odd. Yeah, signed it in blood. <laughs> Happiest day of my life. If you haven't, if you're not a dexterity game player, just give it a try. Keep an open mind, but make sure you're always aware of the people around you and you're not being too loud and obnoxious. I've seen that in dexterity games as well. Why are you looking at me when you're saying no, that? No, not you at all. I'm, I'm, Why are you staring at me when you talk about being too loud and obnoxious, Walker? Definitely nothing that you've ever done, but in convention settings, make sure you're just aware of, of the whole room and, and the people around you. Well, that's going to close us out for this episode of So Very Wrong About Games. I would like to encourage you to find us on Facebook. We've got uh, a group going there. A number of people have showed up and said very terrible things about us, so you should join in too. You don't want other people to have all the fun of excoriating us and hating our names. You can reach Walker directly at justrolledadice at gmail.com. That's J-O-S-T-R-O-L-L-D-A-D-I-C-E at gmail.com. You can reach me at all the games you like on Twitter. We do read all the correspondence we get, so if there's anything you want to tell us, anything you'd like us to cover, any games you'd like us to review, any other features you would like us to have, just let us know. We will indeed read everything you send to us and get back to as much as we can. We are now live on all the major distribution networks, but if you're listening to us, you probably already found us in your favorite podcatcher, and uh, please do keep listening. We appreciate it a great deal. Anything else you want no, to add to No, I was going to say, I think we're going to make Facebook our, our uh, place that we're going to look for comments the most, so if you want to make a comment, please use the Facebook. Absolutely. With that in mind, we thank you very much, and we hope to see you again soon. Take care. You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time, and always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. <laughs>